0: Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. I have a Greek app on my phone, Austin. I looked up legacy. It means old. (laughs) So, no, uh, I, I just... Don't get enough opportunity to say how proud I am of you and your team and this church. Man, things are really going well. And so I praise the Lord for that. It's a, it's a good season, isn't it? Even though it's hard, it's good. I want to say also the worship this morning. Man, there are just some times when the worship is precious. And this morning was one of those, it really was. So, you know, there are, there are times preaching after worship that's that powerful. You could almost like stand up and read from your automobile car manual, and it would feel anointed to people. (laughs) Would you like to start with the windshield wiper or how to change a spare... Never mind. Um, Because that is not what I want to talk about today. We are uh, in a series called According to the Spirit, as I think most of you know. Um, It's the theme for this year. It comes from Romans 8.5, where it says, those who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And, And this series is really all about what it means to live or to walk under the Holy Spirit's guidance and influence in our lives, and the resulting mindsets, attitudes, and behaviors that we should have that will allow us to live as we should live that, that God wants to produce in our lives as we live according to the Spirit. But I, I want to say, uh, living according to the Spirit, some people hear that and they think, oh, it's just this magical, mystical, supernatural, spiritual experience. It, to, to live according to the Spirit just allows you to rise above All the fray and all the issues and problems in the world. I would say to you that living according to the Spirit means that you are engaged in our world. You're engaged in everyday life. And that as you live by the Holy Spirit's empowerment, you are going to be used by Him to make a tangible difference in your little sphere of influence in the lives of other people. You should have influence. As a believer, God wants you to have influence. Now, it's not an issue of how big or how small. That, that really isn't the issue. The issue is being faithful to the influence that God wants you to have. That's why Jesus talked about us being salt and light. Those are influencer kind of words. You should be making a difference in tangible ways in your little world. And as you live according to the Spirit, you're going to see that happening more and more and more. If I would say this in a nutshell, just in a little different way, to live and to walk according to the Spirit shows up looking like something, okay? It's, it's tangible. There's evidence. It should be evident that God is working both in you and through you. If I had to pick one portion of Scripture that probably was the best uh, statement about that that whole thing, it would probably be the list of, of character qualities and behaviors that we find in Ephesians 5. It's a list called the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are hallmark measurements of what it means to, to live and walk according to the Spirit. Well, today I want to I teach on what I personally would call the 10th fruit of the Spirit, now, I understand there is no such thing, technically, but I really think if there was, it would be compassion. It would be compassion. And that's what I want to talk about today. Why, why compassion? What, why is that character quality, that um, behavior, so important to have operating in our lives? Well, I've got three reasons. First of all, And I think most importantly, it played a vital role in Jesus's life and how he lived out his ministry, how he operated. So much of what he did for people came out of the fact that he was moved with compassion or felt compassion for them. The second reason is I think genuine compassion is very, very misunderstood in our world today. And I want to bring some clarity to that. And third, I think There's too much false compassion in our world today, and I I frankly think it's doing more harm than it is good. And again, I'll explain that as I talk today. My hope is twofold. I want to clear up confusion about, so what really is godly, biblical compassion? And this is the greater hope. I, I hope to increase your desire for more of God's compassion operating in your heart and flowing out of your life towards other people. So what exactly is it? I mean, that's a kind of a highfalutin word, compassion. What what is that? What does it mean? In the original Greek text, and I'm not going to bore you with a lot of details about that kind of stuff, the word is splanchnizomai. Say that with me. Splanchnizomai. On the count of three, one, two, three. Splanchnizomai. It rolls off the tongue. Huh? Wow. So what is it though? Well, Webster in the dictionary defines it this way. Compassion is sorrow or pity activated by the distress or misfortune of another person. Sorrow or pity activated. Now that's a key word. Activated by the distress or misfortune of another person. I got to tell you, Webster has really been polite, okay? He's kind of sanitized that word compassion and made it appropriate for church. The word splanchnizomai literally means to be moved in one's bowels. And all God's people said, "Ew, how gross! You're probably thinking... Pastor Kent, do we really need to talk about bowel movements in church? I mean, come on. Is that appropriate? So hold on for just a minute, okay? See, what we don't understand so often is, back when this book was written, people believed and thought that your bowels, your your innards, were the, the source of and the center of your most passionate emotions. That's where love came from and mercy came from, and that's where compassion comes from. Today, we we don't use that word, but we use words like heart. Oh, he's got such a heart for the poor. She's got such a heart for widows and orphans. Or maybe at times we use the word guts. Wow, it took a lot of guts to step forward and do that. So if you're more comfortable with heart and guts, that's fine. Just know what the word really means, okay? Okay. Once you get past the body part issue... Simply said, compassion is the deep-seated emotion—get this—that moves you to action. The deep-seated emotion that moves you to action, okay? It's not just a feeling, all right? It's a feeling that moves you, compels you to do something, all right? It's kind of like agape love, God's kind of love, all right? It's it's a love that responds and acts— in a given situation or circumstance. It's way more than sympathy. I mean, mean, sympathy just means, oh, I understand how you're feeling. Or or even empathy, oh, I feel what you feel. It's beyond just feelings. It, It moves you to act, okay? Compassion is something, when you read through the Gospels, you'll discover it was a regular, frequent thing that moved Jesus to act. Just a couple of examples out of the Gospels. It says Jesus moved with compassion fed the 5,000, healed two blind men, taught the multitudes, healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, raised the widow of Nain's dead son. So those are just little snapshots of it. But compassion, while it's not always stated as the motivation for why Jesus did what he did, it's a regular occurrence that Jesus, feeling compassion for or moved with compassion for, did these kinds of things. It's vitally important. Plus, in addition to that, two of the most well-known parables in the Gospels. The first one, Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is talking about forgiveness. He talks about the king, a picture of God, and the servant, a picture of us. And, And it says in that text that the king moved with compassion, forgave the servant. And then the point was, well, the servant wouldn't forgive the other servant who did far less to him. But the point is, God's heart is compassion that causes him to forgive. Probably an even better known story, this is the story of the prodigal son. The father in that picture, again, is a picture of God. And it says, as he sees his wayward son coming home, he was moved with compassion. He felt compassion and he ran to him and hugged him, embraced him, put a robe on him, gave him a ring, killed the fatted calf, etc., etc., etc. Godly compassion moves your heart to act, to behavior, okay? I think the ultimate sign of compassion, while the word isn't used, I think it's very, uh, very much fits and it's almost synonymous with what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. Compassion, again, the deep-seated emotion, sorrow, pity, mercy, whatever you want to call it, that moves someone to action. That's exactly what God did in sending Jesus. He looked on the plight of mankind, separated from him, lost. Lost in sin. And he felt this thing that moved his heart to act. He he gave the most precious thing there was, his his son, the life of his son, to deal with the sin problem that, that we have. If that's not genuine compassion, it'll do until genuine compassion shows up, don't you think? Oh my goodness. Compassion reveals and demonstrates, displays the heart of God, and it's a heart characteristic that God wants to develop or deepen or grow. In every single one of us. Are you familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? You probably are. It's found in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read part of that, but I want to set it up before we get into the scripture I want to read. Jesus is having a conversation with a guy that's called in scripture the rich young ruler, and he's asking Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus tells him it boils down to two things. You love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And, and this guy then wants to know, well, who, who are you talking about? That's my neighbor. That's kind of a global thing. Who, who's my neighbor? And that's where we pick up the story. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. And then Jesus asked, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the rich young ruler said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said, yep, go and do the same. You see, Genuine compassion doesn't just wear a ribbon to say, oh, I really care. I really care. If you wear ribbons, if you want to wear ribbons, that's fine. I have have no issue with that whatsoever, but don't stop at that and call it genuine biblical compassion, okay? It can be a wonderful demonstration, but it's not compassion because godly compassion responds To needs. Hearts are moved so that we respond in tangible, practical, helpful ways. That's what biblical compassion really is. Biblical compassion takes personal responsibility in order to actually help someone in need. The Good Samaritan saw the problem, it it came into his little world, into his sphere of influence. There was a guy beaten, robbed, and, and left for dead. And he went out of his way to help this guy in tangible ways. He bandaged his wounds. He personally took him to that inn. He personally cared for him, and then when he had some other obligations, he personally paid for this guy's ongoing care. It's clear that when Jesus talks about this guy feeling compassion, the measure of that was he showed mercy. They're inseparably linked. Your heart is moved so that you act in response to what God is doing. Genuine biblical compassion gives of itself first. And it doesn't necessarily expect anybody else to get involved in that process. That can happen, and when it does, it's fine. But it's about what God is calling me to do in response to this thing, okay? And genuine biblical compassion costs you something more than the price of a ribbon. It's what God did with Jesus, okay? And I want you to listen very closely to to what I'm going to say, okay, because it might sound like I'm going to get political here for a moment, but I'm not being political in terms of party political, okay? I'm going to give a contrast between God's compassion, biblical compassion, and what we see so often going on in, in humanity, in governments, trying to show a form of compassion to people in need, okay? One of those ways works and is appropriate, and the other way is not and does not. Now, I I wanna be really clear too. What I'm gonna share with you is God's perspective on biblical compassion, all right? Not my opinion, don't have time for your opinion, but I want you to examine your own heart and life compared to what God's Word says about this topic of compassion. Are you willing to do that? Good, good, because it's important that we do. So I want to talk about what's happening on the southern border of the United States for a little while, okay? Hear my heart in this. Again, it's God's Word, not my opinion. It's not politically motivated, But the goal is, the goal I have for all of us is, what does God have to say about this flood of people that are crossing our border into our country, being allowed to do that in the name of what many are calling the compassionate thing to do? Now, God cares for those people. Amen? 100% God cares for them. So let's be clear on that. But the question is, is our government's response, its attitudes, its actions, its behavior, is it genuinely compassionate and is it correct? When, when President Biden's press secretary, Jen Saki, got that right this time, I didn't first service, was asked about this whole issue about what's going on at the border and why are we doing this, this is what she said, it's the humane thing to do as opposed to the previous administration's inhumane treatment of these people flooding into America. Again, we're not going to debate that, but I want to make this point. She was very accurate in this perspective, in this manner. They are focused on being humane. That is their goal. But to be humane is way different than to be compassionate from a biblical sense and a biblical perspective, okay? Because to be humane really means I am going to put my human effort, man's effort, towards fixing a problem man's way. And in essence, what's being said is we really don't need to invite God into this process to figure out what he would want us to do. We know what to do and we can do this. We have the capability of fixing problems. Because we are humane. I hear somebody chuckling, and that really kind of is the appropriate response because we do not have within us the ability to fix these kind of messes. Amen, Kent. What a great point. It's the truth, church. It's the truth. We don't have it within us. And God doesn't expect us to have it within us, on our own, to just go fix these kind of messes, these kind of problems, and somehow think it's compassion. It's being humane, but it's incomplete, and it's ineffective. Fixing things man's way is not the right way or the best way to fix problems or alleviate people's needs. There's an article in... Um, the newspaper on Friday, on the opinion page. And it was an editorial from the Houston Chronicle. And I'm not going to read it to you because it's kind of long. But I do want to read the last little part of a paragraph. After a four-year abdication of our obligation to the world, the federal government is taking America's laws and responsibilities seriously. Now, they're, they're making a contrast between the past and the present. But I just, I want to clearly say to you, biblically, we do not have an obligation to fix all the world's problems. We don't. Well, that's just your opinion. Uh Uh-uh, it's in the book, all right? God is the only one who can fix the messes that people make in this world. Now, there are times when he will lead us to do our part and we may play a part in all that, but he's the only one that has what it takes to fix this stuff. Our responsibility is to hear God on a personal level and respond accordingly personally, all right? So let me let me take this out of the theoretical and especially out of the global sense of this crisis that we're looking at and and Boil it down to maybe a personal example, all right? So let's just say that I'm downtown last week, and I see 10 homeless guys, and I get stirred in my heart. And I call Caleb Carlson. Caleb, you're back there, right? And I say to you, hey, Caleb, I was downtown the other day, and I saw 10 homeless guys, and I was so moved with compassion that I invited them to come live at your house, That's kind of what's going on, folks. And, and, oh, they'll be here in 20 minutes, so be ready. And Caleb says to me, wait a minute, I don't have room for those people, and what if they tell 10 others, and they tell 20 others, where am I going to put them? And I say, you've got a big backyard, they'll, they'll be fine. I don't have food for them. I don't have money, who's going to pay for this? Great questions, right? Who are these guys? What about my wife and my kids? Are they going to be safe? What about my neighbors? Are they going to be safe? What are my neighbors going to think about this? And I just look at him and say, hey, that's not my problem. I got the compassion. Now you take care of this for me. That is not compassion, folks. Is it? No, no. Because genuine compassion takes personal responsibility. It doesn't just pawn it off on everybody else and say, I feel this. Now you fix it. It just never works that way. And that's what's happening in Texas, and that's why what's going on at our border is such a mess, because humane treatment never fixes the problem. And what's going on is not biblical compassion. Biblical compassion, again, is much more individualized. A person is moved personally, so that person takes personal responsibility and action and ownership to alleviate the problem. It's almost always a personal thing. That's what Jesus did in those six examples I shared. He was moved. He fixed the problem. That's what the good Samaritan did. He didn't drop the guy off at the inn and leave a note saying, this guy's really screwed up. Take care of him. Personal responsibility. Biblical compassion deeply feels an emotion and personally takes responsibility to help. Biblical compassion does not pass the buck, okay? It doesn't expect other people to do something. And it usually happens, I'll use the word locally, meaning within your own sphere of influence. The good Samaritan came upon this guy, saw him, felt compassion, and responds. The scripture talks about beholding your brother in need and helping him. Behold, like, oh, I see it. It's right there. It's in my little sphere of influence. You don't expect other people to do what God is calling you to do. Now, I think compassion can have more of a global picture to it. At Good Shepherd, how many years now have we bought shoes for the kids in Haiti? We have had a, a, a burden. We've had compassion. We've shared it with the congregation. and You've responded marvelously. That's A-OK. But, but we can't expect other people to respond to the compassion we feel. It's great when they do, but we can't live with that as our expectation. Now, God is stirring our hearts. We need to know how to respond to that and follow his lead and his prompting. What does that look like? We'll talk about that in a second. It's always appropriate to pray, okay? You look at the crisis at the border, it's always appropriate to pray, always. And speaking of prayer, we have a 24-hour prayer time coming, all right? It's next Saturday and next Sunday from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There are slots to sign up for. You can do that online. Would it be great if we had like 10 people every slot, not just got every slot filled one time? So don't go online and go, oh, shucks, they're all full. Yay! Take a time. Double up, triple up, quadruple up, all right? But be praying, because prayer absolutely is something we can do, and it's vital that we do it. All right. Here's another thing I want to make sure you understand. Genuine godly compassion doesn't mean that we try to meet every need that's out there. That is not the measure of compassion. It's kind of the measure of foolishness in some ways. And I say that because Jesus himself didn't try and meet every need that was out there. In John 17, 4, he said, "I he's talking to God and says, I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Yes, Jesus was clearly moved and motivated by compassion, and he responded. But he didn't meet every need there was to meet. When he left this earth, there were still sick people. There was still sin. There was still hunger. There was still poverty. There were still all of those things. He did what God told him to do and led him to do. And that's what God expects of us. That's what true biblical compassion looks like. Around here, we call that living with your antenna up, being sensitive according to the Spirit, to ask, God, what are you doing? I see this going on. What are you doing? What do you want me to do about this? What what should my involvement be? What would you have me do? Those are the kind of questions that we ask and then fully expect God to start speaking to us. Amen? So as we wrap this up, I want to make this very, very personal, okay? I don't just want to talk about what it is and what it isn't. I want to talk about what, what can we and what should we do about this. Well, first of all, we should never use things like a crisis at the border as an excuse not to be involved in helping other people. That is such a mess. It just proves that it doesn't do any good. No way, I'm out. Us four, no more, close the door. We got enough stuff to worry about without worrying about other people who have needs. That is not a godly biblical response at all. No more than the the humane effort to try and fix everybody in our own strength This one, I think, is equally bad. We cannot withdraw and pull back and opt out because things are so screwed up and because things are such a mess. We hear so much today about cancel culture. You familiar with that term? Poor Mr. Potato Head. What did he ever do? Dr. Seuss books, I mean, and, and on and on and on it goes. The problem is the insanity out there in the world tends to make Christians want to withdraw. This is so ridiculous, this is so stupid, this is insane, I'm out. Wrong heart, church. Wrong response, church. You see, if we get stuck focusing on all the craziness of cancel culture, the devil is pulling a fast one on us. It's a scheme that he's been working For a long, long time. You see, in in Matthew 24, 12, Jesus is talking about what are going to be the signs of his return. What's the world going to be like just before he comes back? I'm not making a prediction, okay, on when he's coming. But he says these words. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. That's Matthew 24, 12. The love he's talking about there is the word agape. Agape. So he's not talking about, oh, look at the world, how screwed up they are. He's talking to his church, to his people, and saying because lawlessness is on the increase. And how many of you have noticed? How many would say lawlessness has been increasing? Yeah, if you didn't put your hand up, talk to somebody because you're missing what's going on. It's definitely on the increase. But what happens in that is Christians let their agape love grow cold. The Greek word, again, without boring you, is the word you would use for a hot cup of coffee. You blow on it to cool it off. Church, the devil has a cancel culture work he's trying to do against the church to get us to cancel the culture of compassion that we need to be exercising in the world today. No matter how lawless it is, no matter how screwed up it is, no matter how messed up it is, it is not the time to retreat. It's not the time to get afraid and despairing and hopeless. Oh, the world is so screwed up. Let's just get out of here. Rather, it's time to press in. Press into God because we live in a world that desperately needs what we have, who we have. The Lord Jesus it's time to press in and say, God, what are you doing and what do you want me to do? That's the vital question. And I think two things are important to do that. First of all, be honest where you're at with him. I mean, like, look, like you're going to fool him anyhow. <laughs> I've tried that, it still hasn't worked. Listen. If you don't have compassion in your heart towards people in need, talk to God about that. Tell him that. Tell him you've seen, maybe from what I've said today, or maybe you've known this for a while. God, I don't have the kind of compassion you talk about. Would you please change my heart? I need more compassion, your kind of compassion. I can promise you, if you pray that, he will answer. You see, Colossians 3.12 says... So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, that's us, by the way, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. To put on this heart, it's not a command or a call that you better start working really hard to get more compassionate, sister. It's not about your self-effort to become more compassionate. To put on a heart of compassion, the picture's like this. It's like you walk into your clothes closet and God has already tailor-made a suit of compassion for you, and all you have to do is put it on. You don't have to make it, sew it, cut it out. Just put it on. Well, I'm not so sure I have a heart of compassion. Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? then the seeds of compassion are in you. Here's why I say that. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. That means you have the Holy Spirit in you if you're a follower of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ, there's going to be some people down front afterwards that you should talk to today because you need to follow Jesus. You need to embrace him and receive him as Savior and Lord. But back to the point If you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit is the source of compassion. So maybe you don't have a lot of compassion in your heart, but the seeds of compassion are in you. Let God water those seeds, fertilize those seeds, and bring forth more of what is already in you, but what he wants to see come out of you. It's called compassion. And then the second thing is, you need to seek God for wisdom. Seek God for wisdom. James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, just ask. Just ask God. He won't, he won't uh, reproach you. In other words, he won't scold you or, or correct you for not having it. He just wants to give it to you. But you see, wisdom, genuine godly compassion needs God's wisdom because our own little hearts don't know what to do and we either wind up doing way too much or not enough. And sometimes, and I think this is a part of what's going on at the border, false compassion enables bad behavior at times. And we're not called to do that. Wisdom is knowing how to apply what the Scripture says. And we need to be able to hear the voice of God specifically speaking to each of us as to what should I do in that situation or this situation. The answer at times can be, I don't want you to do anything. In that moment. But that's not the general overarching always answer that God has because compassion is something he wants his people to be exhibiting, okay? You see, we're also called scripturally to something called prudence. We're called to be prudent, okay? And prudence is sound reasoning and proper caution. So you don't just bleeding heart go out there and just try and help everybody. Hey, Caleb, there's more coming to your house. No, that's not it at all. You have to hear God and know how to properly apply what he says and what his voice, the voice of his spirit is, is saying to you. Because biblically, I mean, we are clearly called uh, not to close our hearts to the poor. We're called to remember the poor. It says righteous men and women have a concern for the poor. So there's something appropriate about some kind of involvement. But the scripture also says that the poor will always be with us. And so you don't jump in trying to help every poor person you ever see, and you also don't just go, well, they're always going to be here. I'm not going to do anything. Both of those approaches are wrong. 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 You see, to properly respond with genuine biblical compassion, once again, is to allow the voice of the Holy Spirit to individually and specifically speak to each of us about our personal involvement in those circumstances and then respond accordingly. Again, there can be a corporate response. I think when there is one, that's good. Just make sure that it's God-led. He's the one behind it, and it's based in wisdom, not humane effort. i close with this. There's a lot of people who may not want to hear the gospel message, but they desperately need to see it lived out through your life and mine. That's what's going to make a difference. There are people who are not going to respond to the words of the gospel, But I'm telling you, I've seen more people whose hearts have been touched when they have seen a biblical response of compassion to suffering and to needs. And God, we need more of that. Amen. So I want you to stand. I want to pray with you. I don't know if it's this message. It might be something you've been feeling, thinking about for a long time. But if you are convicted today as you hear this. Would you acknowledge that somehow? Either nod at me or slip your hand up real quick or put your, do something that says, this is touching me. Okay, that's good. If you're convicted by what you've heard today, you need to acknowledge that. You need to confess it. Confession is not feeling terribly bad and guilty about something. It just means to agree with the truth. That's what confession means. And so in this moment of quiet, we're gonna have her in a second, just agree with the truth. Lord, I've seen my heart today and I need more godly compassion. Please touch my heart. But also, Lord, I need wisdom. This is too big for me to figure out. I don't know where to get involved, where not to get involved. Please speak to me and lead me clearly, okay? give you a minute. Just in your own heart of hearts, pray that, however that needs to look for you. Doesn't need to be a long prayer, just a sincere, heartfelt one. So, Lord, I'm just asking for my own sake and for the sake of this body that you would indeed change our hearts, change our hearts, God, so that we can be used to change our world in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. Church, I believe if you prayed that God's doing something in your heart right this very minute. So get out there and go get them. Okay. In Jesus name with his compassion, because it will make a difference. God bless you. Have a great week.